You are listening to Dedication Point, an oral history of the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area. I'm your host, Gregory Haddock. This oral history project was produced by the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership, working in close collaboration with the Bureau of Land Management, the Wildlands Collective, and the Peregrine Fund's Archives of Falconry. We will be featuring a series of 20 interviews conducted with key figures in the history of the Snake River Canyon region. We will be releasing one interview each week over the course of the next five months here on this podcast feed. Today's interview is from a man who knows more about the Snake River Canyon than most do about their own backyards. Andy Ogden was just a middle school teenager when he and friends first met Morley Nelson after bringing him an injured hawk. Nelson became an instant hero to Ogden and his friends and even gave him one of his first jobs. The boys were in awe at the way Mr. Nelson, as he still refers to him, would handle raptors and other birds of prey with such comfort. He says Nelson could command respect from any bird within minutes, and he's not seen anything like it since. Andy and his friends would take every chance they could to go and see Morley Nelson and would spend hours running the camera for some of his films. Andy Ogden would go on to work four decades with wildlife, fish and game, and habitat research and enforcement. His early research in the Snake River Canyon helped establish its boundaries. He says the biggest threat facing the area today is loss of natural vegetation and the introduction of invasive cheatgrass species. I'm Andy Ogden. I was born and raised in Boise. In junior high school, I ended up meeting uh, Moreland Nelson. And through him, he got us, well, we had actually found an injured hawk and we took it up to him. And from there, my friends and I got into falconry and Mr. Nelson taught us really to fall in love with raptors from that point on. And so I was basically in junior high when I decided what I wanted to do in life, and that was emulate Mr. Nelson. If you want to figure, you know, give anybody credit for establishing the the Birds of Prey area, it's him. He, and when I was going up in high school, he got me a job working for the the Fish and Wildlife Service, climbing cliffs, going into golden eagle nests. And he had, of course, trained us how to climb into cliffs and do the rappelling and everything. And with that job, I then got my foot in the door to go further. So that was in 67 or 68, maybe a little earlier than that. I spent two summers climbing for the cliffs for the Fish and Wildlife Service, and we were doing a food habit study on golden eagles. And at that time, we went all over southwest Idaho finding eagle nests and checking food habits in them. And then after that, Morris Hornocker started the first graduate student down there studying raptors. And the first student was John Beecham. And he came from Texas and got his master's degree studying golden eagles in the birds in what became the birds of prey area. And then after John was Mike Cokert, he did an additional work on eagles, on golden eagles. And then I started my study on prairie falcons right as John was finishing up his golden eagle research. So that gets us up to about 69 when I started intensively looking for falcons. The uh, study area that I picked basically mimics the boundaries of what is now the Birds of Prey area. It ran from Grandview basically down to Halverson Lake at uh, below Swan Falls and the side canyons and everything off of the river itself. My research then was aimed at really there wasn't anything in the literature about prairie falcons, productivity, nest site selections, prey and that sort of thing. And that's what I did for my for my master's research. I remember we had some awesome times down there and my climbing partner and I, we, at, at that time, there was nobody in the, in the canyon. Uh, we'd go days and days and never see another person down there. 
And we had some some real adventures climbing cliffs and falling off of cliffs and finding prairie falcons that were especially aggressive at defending their nest. Most of the time they just Flied around and cackled at you, but I remember there was one we named the Sun Goddess, and she was trying to kill you. She really, really was trying to kill you. She actually hit my rappel guy, Dave Rodenbaugh, got him in the back of the head and and knocked him completely out. She she was a mean falcon, and yeah, you know other birds that we hawks and owls and stuff that we kept track of down there, but prairie falcons were our main main thing. Mm-hmm. Even before we get to the details of the research, like, let's start with how you met Morley, right? Because it sounds like that's that's where this all began. And you said you were in junior high school. Do you like, do yeah, you have a, we, like, how did you how did you meet him? And I mean, do you have a, a, oh, okay. a, a early memory of yeah. that oh, first yeah. meeting? Yeah. Um, we were up fooling around. My buddies and I were up climbing around and uh, running around in the foothills at the north end of 36th Street up in the foothills. And we found a Swainson's hawk that somebody had shot and uh, had a broken wing. At that time, there the, the fish and game department didn't really do anything with hawks. We brought it home after quite a struggle because we didn't know how it this was an adult Swainson's hawk and it was mean but we finally got it home and somehow or other we got the word you talked to Mr. Nelson and so we called him and took the bird up to him and he of course worked his magic on the hawk and he could he could talk to that thing and calm it down and everything it was it was amazing but there were no rehabbers then and this bird had a badly broken wing it was never going to fly again so it was either euthanize it or keep it and i ended up keeping it and it could never fly if i had it for probably four four years at least and that thing never got a bit tamer than the day we caught it the first time it was just a terrible terrible hawk but every time mr nelson had talked to it it, 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 within seconds he would be stroking its chest telling him what a beautiful hawk he is and he'd just calm right down it was something you know anyway so we started going and getting hawks that could actually fly, you know, and at that time, the falconry rules were much more liberal than they were now. Basically, the the only rules we had were the ones that were imposed by Mr. Nelson. You didn't get certain kinds of hawks until you had a certain level of skills, and he determined when you could go. And, you know, you started out with a kestrel, red tail, that sort of thing that are pretty easy to train. You didn't get to go up to a falcon or a goshawk or something like that until he said you were ready. But it was a badge of honor to, to get to go and try to find a goshawk to train as opposed to a clunky old red tail that were pretty hard to kill anything with. At the same time, what happened was daily on every day, basically, uh, the three of us that were into falconry would go to Mr. Nelson's house and we'd wait for him to come home from work. By that time, we were expected to have the hawk house cleaned out, be ready to go, and then train. He would run through and train what birds he had there. And that's a whole nother story about what he could do with hawks. But anyway, we would bring our birds up and show them off to him. And he would tell us what we were doing wrong, what we were doing right and everything. And then we'd take them home. And it's like once a week, you had to bring your hawk up and he'd check it over and make sure you were taking care of it. To get onto the actual topic of what we're talking about, see, Mr. Nelson knew people and he knew that, you know, through the University of Idaho, he got Hornocker interested in starting to do Golden Eagle research down here. And that was the way I ended up getting on getting onto the project. Mm-hmm. What was your first impression of him? I mean, oh, we were just in awe. The guy was a god, really. You got to understand when you're trying to train a hawk and it's you don't know what you're doing, you get bit a lot, you get grabbed a lot, um, and you just, it's very, very slow progress on it. And it takes you months, basically, to do it. Mr. Nelson could do a week's worth of work in 10 minutes with your hawk. Of course, the damn hawk forgot what he taught it by the time you got it home. <laughs> and so he didn't really gain that much. But you could see the progress going on when it, when the birds were in his hands. Mm-hmm. Well, we had great fun. 
up there. Clearly, it wasn't just you that was getting trained. No, there's three of us. Three of you? Okay. Yeah. Finally, I had Hawks clear until uh, I got into college. I went to Boise State. And at that time, I finally, after my sophomore year, I decided I just didn't have enough time with school to uh, to still try to keep the hawk going. And so we ended up turning all mine loose, you know, and that's, you know, the way I stopped doing falconry. But no, we didn't go to the we didn't go to the high school prom because we were chasing hawks, you know, and that was that, that's what we did. Yeah, none of us had any girlfriends because we had hawks to take care of. And that was, you know, what we did. Yeah. Was Morley the one that that introduced you to the Snake River Canyon area? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you remember like going out there for the first time? Oh, yeah. yeah. He, uh, well, we were raised in Boise and, and that's what you did, what we did on weekends. Once we were old enough to get a car, uh, we spent most of our weekends camping down there and, and getting in trouble down there in the, in the Birds Prairie area and, you know, hunting jackrabbits and hunting birds and and taking our hawks and trying to kill stuff you know it's, you know what we did but yeah we spent a lot of time on our own but uh, mr nelson did several well let's see we took one golden eagle out of a nest for him to train up and that one came from up at bogus basin up there at one time mr nelson made movies for disney and he trained the the birds to make these movies and they were kind of corny movies you know there was ida the offbeat eagle and stuff like that and they made them into a family kind of a story but he had to train the birds to do that sort of thing and and we were his assistant we were his lackeys you know to do what he said i get i don't know i can go on and on about the stuff he could do <laughs> one one summary out of a prairie falcon movie to make and we went out and caught we took 20 juvenile prairie falcons out of different nests all up and down the canyon climbed in and 20 falcons were training them all at once or we weren't he was he would come home from work and he'd tell us you know, Goga Kashira. He had every falcon had a name, and he could tell them apart. We couldn't. We, we and he'd say, "Go get you know Kashira or something." And we were up there and going, "Well, who the hell is this?" And we'd bring one back, and he'd say, "No, no, that's somebody else." And go, "Oh, geez." And he could touch them, stroke their breast for a minute, and they'd say, "Well, nope, you better put her back. She won't fly today." To a, a normal falconer, that's the day you lose your hawk. Of course, we didn't have telemetry or anything in those days like they do now. You you couldn't recognize the difference in its temperament or how fat it was that day. He could. And he'd say, oh, you better put her back. She can't go today. And then the next one, he'd say, OK, we're going to fly. And he'd fly each bird for about uh, 10 or 15 minutes, having it diving at the lure. And our job, job was basically to, when he finished, we put it back in the hawk house and grabbed hopefully the right one to do the next training session and that was the kind of thing we did for him you know we had training golden eagles that he used for for movies and it was after i left that he ended up getting some bald eagles but that time he had two or three golden eagles and one of them was the meanest son of a bitch that ever flew the sky she was terrible and clyde was a you, we were just deathly afraid of if we got called to go get Clyde, you know, and, and oh, no, there were some adventures with that bird, even with Mr. Nelson. I mean, she knocked him down on the ground one time and was standing on top of him with her foot right over his face her talons right over his eyes and underneath his chin. And all she would have had to do is go like that and he'd have been blind or dead right then and she stared him in the face and said i'm done training for the day we <laughs> were trying to get a scene of it coming in and killing a rattlesnake well he didn't have a rattlesnake so we're using a bull snake and and then of course they'd clip it and dub it or whatever you know to make it look like a rattlesnake we did the scene tried to do the scene about four or five times and every time the rattles he would get the eagle would get close mr nelson would step in front of it and block him so he couldn't get the snake and about the fifth time sixth time the eagle decided he wanted to eat that snake and he just knocked him right down and stood on him and and walked over and killed the snake and that was it we were done filming uh 
Uh, all I can remember is we didn't know what to do. We were running, trying to run the movie camera, and Mr. Nelson just saying, don't move. And we, of course, were frozen with fear because it was awful. We knew how mean that eagle was. Uh, we had a lot of adventures with Mr. Nelson like that, you know. <laughs> I bet. And I mean, it's it sounds like you were recruited to assist in making these these movies that that that, that were. Yeah. Certain scenes that they were trying yeah. that he was trying to get. I have no idea what he did after, right. you know, after we took the film. In those days, the cameras, you had that one guy trying to keep the eagle in the frame and another guy running the focus. And as they were diving towards you, it was hard to do. And I don't know if any of the film we ever took ever got used. We sure tried over and over again, but you know, we're just high school kids doing it. Yeah. This was like mid 60s. I graduated from high school in 66. And so it would have been before then. And then about 67, is when I started to work for the Fish and Wildlife Service. And that was probably the Fish and Wildlife Service contacted Mr. Nelson, trying to find somebody who knew how to climb cliffs. And that was the way I got that job. And then everything else was progression from there. Once I graduated from college, then went to the University of Idaho and got my master's degree. When, you know, you say like, you know, you suspect that that essentially like Morley Nelson got you this this job. Climbing into oh, yeah. nest for, for I mean, I was a high school. Right? How I yeah. wouldn't know how to contact anybody. Right. To get and of course, he gave cool. you the experience that. that, that, that yeah. You know. mm-hmm. But um, I mean, like, do you like are like, do you know, or, like, was this a conscious effort on Morley's part to, like, do the research that would potentially lead to protection for that area? Yes. Oh, I'm sure. He never told me that, but I'm sure that was his intent was to get that. Why else would he have, you know, got the university to start recruiting graduate students to come down and study the birds of prey that were down there? Uh, yeah, he was, that was one of his crusades in life was to protect hawks. And, um, and there was a lot of hawks living down there. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, it sounds like at a certain point, like obviously he was, he never stopped making the movies and doing the education and outreach work associated with that effort, right? But it sounds like at a certain point in the 60s, he consciously decided, like, I need to start, create a situation where scientific data is being collected on these raptors because that's what's going to lead to this area being protected. Like, he, he, he started to see the importance of and the need for protection of that area. Maybe in his mind, yeah. Sure. Uh, you know, I'm a high school kid. Uh, <laughs> right. Just, you know, uh, to me, uh, I was just having a great time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm curious about how that transitioned. So when, when you first met uh, Morley, you were sort of a falconer in training and you were a filmmaker in training. And then, you know, you said you got into school and then into graduate school and you sort of transitioned from from that role into like a research biologist. So if you have some insight into how that kind of evolution went, that would be really interesting as well. I decided when I was in junior high school what I wanted to do for a living. And and that was, you know, work for Fish and Game. I mean, that, okay. that, that was, was, you know. Way back then, I wanted to work as a raptor biologist, but they didn't have those when you got to fishing game. So I did other stuff. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm curious to what degree you were aware of the steps being taken that led to the original withdrawal of the Snake River natural area in 71. Not, not at all. I was working on my study and going to school in Moscow. And um, in fact, I uh, I have a, a photo of the dedication to the day they dedicated the area. And C.B. Morton, who was the Secretary of Interior, was actually up there on top of the cliff, giving a talk to the to the reporters and everything about the dedication. Dave and I were at the bottom of that same clip and we were working on falcons it was finding nests and and that was the procedure you spent your time at the bottom of the clip watching and you figured out which hole they were in you know they're nesting and then you went back around and rappelled down into the to get down to the nest well the 
So you'd spend hours sitting down there trying to figure out where that nest hole is in relation to that sagebrush on top of the cliff. Well, all of a sudden there's a whole bunch of people standing on top of the cliff and we never see anybody down there. So we drove around to see what was going on, you know, and it turns out they were dedicating the area right then. Well, I didn't, I didn't know anything about it. We were, well, we, uh, we were, you know, scientists, we were working. We didn't, you know, didn't really care. That's hilarious, though, that the dedication was happening and you just happened, you were out doing your field research and oh, yeah. Like, oh, who are those people over yeah, there? Yeah, why, why, yeah, why are there a whole bunch of people standing on top of the cliff up there? <laughs> they're just, they're biasing my study, they're disturbing, right? Disturbing my I mean, yeah. is that like obviously, and you know, I mean, you explain how you felt about that in the moment, but like looking back at that in retrospect, does it seem strange that, or I mean, oh, I, I, that you were like, you were oblivious to the fact that pretty significant thing was happening this whole area was getting protected it was being dedicated right at that time i certainly didn't appreciate the importance of it then oh no if you know if it weren't done you could i could easily envision that uh, that it would be farmland all the way to the to the edge of the canyon right now between that and the national guard reserve you know their area you know a lot of it would be gone yeah to farmland mm-hmm. When you started your Prairie Falcon research project, so that was your master's project? Yes. Had anyone done any research on prairie falcons in that area before then? And and was there, because like no. now we know that this, like they're the species that they are have, you know, become like representative of this NCA and the boundary is based on this research, right? That yeah. you and, and, and others uh, conducted. But was there any awareness before you started doing that work, how important this area was for prairie falcons specifically? Uh, no, you got to remember, there comes a time in, in studying any species where you don't know anything about them and you got to start out at the bottom. And in the mid 60s, that's where they were with prairie falcons. There had been no more than three or four. I'd have to look at my thesis again to see how many actual prairie falcon research projects had been conducted in the West. And I can remember one in Montana and one in Colorado. And I think that was it. It was, I wouldn't say pioneering, but it was basic research and that, that I was doing. Did you have a realization at a certain point in doing the research like, wow, these prairie falcons exist in much higher densities here than anywhere else? Or this is a really significant or special area for this species? Nope. I got to remember, I, I spent all my high school and all my time banging around in the birds of prey area and didn't even know what I was looking at. Certainly, I knew that if you went out into the Hawaii's, uh, there weren't as many prairie falcons out there. Uh, but uh, the, you know, I also knew that the reason you had a lot of prairie falcons was because you, you had a lot of ground squirrels. And, and uh, that was, you know. You just accept that as being the facts, and that wasn't anything awe-inspiring at all. I right. Mean, yeah. oh, wait a minute. I shouldn't say it like that. I mean, you know, to, to, to look back and think about the days that we're, you could see uh, five or six male prairie falcons taking turns to harass one eagle that's just trying to fly down the river. He's just trying to get from point A to point B, and every place he goes, he gets chased by prairie falcons. And... Of course, my interest was to watch that male prairie falcon and see where he turns around because that's the edge of his territory. And once you get the territory boundaries marked out on the cliff face, then you know where to start keying in on where his nest is. That was my job, you know, okay? But thinking back on it, yeah, you know, it was it was something. Or, or the day that a peregrine falcon showed up, we didn't have peregrine falcons in those days. They, they were basically extinct you know and uh, the day that a, a female peregrine falcon showed up and she established a territory in the middle of the densest nesting cliff of prairie falcons and she came in and forcefully took over a nest site and it was an amazing thing to see to watch 10 or 12 prairie falcons males females everybody was trying to get that peregrine out of there and she wouldn't move boy she she moved right in and took over a nest and uh, she didn't have a male but she ran a female prairie falcon off her nest and 
tried to incubate her eggs. It was a doomed effort, but to see things like that, yeah. But you got to remember, I was 18, 19 years old, you know, wasn't that big of a deal. Well, and you had grown up there. So, I mean, that your, well, your base level knowledge was just, you were used to seeing yeah. that many that many birds right in the canyon so i mean i guess was there sort of like an, an opposite realization moment of realizing oh this area that i've been spending so much time in my whole life actually is really special and in other areas there aren't nearly as many raptors yeah i would say later when i was working for fish and game i mm -hmm. actually was they send me out to do inventory to look for peregrine falcons and i traveled around pretty much all of the southern part of the state looking at nest cliffs trying to find places that I thought might be peregrine habitat if they, if they were to reintroduce peregrines and that sort of thing. And certainly, yeah, we never saw as many prairie falcons anyplace else as we did there. And and other raptors, I mean, there were, you know, golden eagles densities that are got have to be right up there with any place in the world. And gripe red tails and everything else were down there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When you completed your uh, master's research, you know, what, where did you go? Where did you go from there? When I graduated from the University of Idaho, I went to work for Idaho Fish and Game, basically, mm -hmm. and spent the next 42, 43 years working for Fish and Game. Did you continue to do work in the NCA or continue to spend time? In oh, no, I, I was never really went back there. Um, I was east in eastern Idaho and mm -hmm. in law enforcement and a wildlife biologist and uh, came back over here as a wildlife biologist and never really haven't really done that much work on raptors since since I got my degree. Were you aware of the impact that? The prairie falcon research that you took part in the you know how that essentially led to the expansion of the protection for that area now honestly i don't think i was even aware of what mr nelson was doing you know really um that uh my mindset is such, you know, I got a job to do, I go mm -hmm. do it. And I let other people do their job and that's their job, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, so, no, I didn't pay any attention to it. I was I was a falcon chaser. <laughs> so did you, I mean, did, did you did you stay in touch with, with Morley? Oh, yeah. That, you know, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. I bet he never knew what an impression he made on us. But he sure as hell impressed us enough that you know my buddies and i still we don't call him morley nelson we don't we don't own that name it's mr nelson you know it really is did you pick up falconing again after um no no, uh, no. to be a falconer it takes a lot of time and you really can't can't do it justice and and it isn't worth having a hawk that you can't train and and treat properly and have him do what he's supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Looking back on the whole situation now and the importance of this area, like in sort of developing what turned into your, your career, how does it make you feel that all these steps happened and it did eventually become this national conservation area that is protected specifically for raptors and for prairie falcons? Bittersweet, okay? Um, I'm a habitat guy. I mean, what that means is uh, the, if your interest is in growing wildlife, you got to have the right habitat. And if you don't have the habitat, you don't have the wildlife. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about uh, elephants or prairie falcons. You got to have the right place for them to live. People don't know that in those days, the Snake River Plain from Boise to Mountain Home and beyond, the whole, all that area was solid sagebrush, absolutely solid Wyoming sagebrush. And jackrabbits by the thousands, maybe even millions, lived out there. That was the prey base for golden eagles. And also in that sagebrush habitat was lots of cottontail rabbits. That was the prey base for red-tailed hawks. Probably as many Townsend's ground squirrels, or I guess they call them Paiute ground squirrels now, lived out there then, maybe more than do now. And at least those things are able to survive without sagebrush. But I look back and, and I never realized 
Uh, what a treasure it was to have that desert intact. And uh, I look at it now and, and it's, it's, people have no idea what it's supposed to be. It doesn't, it's not supposed to look like that. So in that respect, you know, it's bittersweet. At least I got to see it, you know, and when there were ferruginous hawks nesting on the rock piles out across the desert. Yeah. And it was bittersweet. Mm-hmm. You've seen a lot of changes in, in the landscape and the habitat. I assume you probably have concerns about the future of this area. Oh, yeah. Are, are you concerned that, that the habitat will continue to degrade? No, it can't go. As far as I can see, it can't go any lower than it is right now. <laughs> uh, at least until a new annual grass comes in, we're going to live with cheatgrass understories, and those are going to burn. And they're going to burn with such frequency that you'll never be able to grow anything else, at least in, in my experience. You know, once they burn, they're gone. And once that sagebrush is gone, the jackrabbits are gone, the, the cottontails are gone, and all the other wildlife that has to have sagebrush is gone. And and ultimately, it's going to it's going to mean that there are fewer raptors out there in the birds of prey area. I don't know what their count is now on nesting golden eagles. You know, you know, but why had eight or nine uh, pairs of ra- of eagles that when I was doing my study in the late '60s, doing the the research for the Fish and Wildlife Service, I'll bet you there are not that many now. My best year was 101 prairie falcon territories in the birds of prey area, 101 pairs that I could identify in the canyon. And I'll bet you it's not that much now. And that that's basically a result of the loss of native habitat. And unfortunately, that's the case. Yeah, but there's nobody more sad about it than me because I can remember what it used to be. And, you know, places that the BLM has given names to certain sites down there that, that Dave and I named, you know, uh, the Baja, the road across the top was terrible, dusty road that we called it the Baja because it looked like the Baja race on TV. A big basin that we called Tick Basin because it was literally swarming with ticks and now it's nothing but cheatgrass. And all the ticks now live down right next to the river. It used to be they lived every place from the top of the cliff all the way down to the bottom because that sagebrush is gone. And it's basin sage that can't come back, you know, not with cheatgrass there. Hmm. Yeah, for me, it's, you know, it's still my favorite place to go, but it's sure not like what it used to be. Hmm. Is there any hope? I mean, is is there is there any way to... To restore that area, any any reason to be hopeful that you know we can maintain the, these these amazing raptor populations? So to grow a lot of hawks, you got to have a lot of food, and until you can grow a lot of food th- that say the eagles need, and that's jackrabbits around here. That's you got to have jackrabbits. You can't have them without sagebrush, and and until they fix the cheatgrass problem and. Um, th- figure out a way to reduce the impacts of frequent fires on on shrub plant, then we're not going to have them. Now, it might be possible to come up with an entirely different shrub to grow out there that is fire tolerant. There are some, you know, but they're they're not native plants. And so they're not most of the time the BLM isn't interested in trying to plant anything other than native plants, even though the native plants have pretty well shown you that they can't survive there anymore. And to me, I, you know, if I want to grow something, I'm going to plant whatever I think it'll take to grow wildlife. I don't know. I guess that, uh, the, for the birds of prey area now, it's probably been long enough that uh, there's nobody around that even knows what it used to used to look like, you know. They and and they probably can't imagine. But even even people who know habitat, okay, know uh, 
sagebrush habitat don't know and don't appreciate the fact that it used to be between sagebrush plants. You got a sagebrush plant here, another plant three feet away. That interspace between the plants used to be dirt. Okay. Maybe a bunch of grass or two stuck out there, but it was dirt between them. That dirt, okay, did a whole bunch of things that gave lizards a place to live, gave ants a place to live. It reduced the fire effects because the fire didn't just take off and go like crazy and burn everything and burn completely, you know. And so that increase in the amount of cheatgrass and loss of dirt has been going on for a hundred years now and just cheatgrass is slowly increased and increased and increased and i know as a habitat guy in sage grouse country i used to uh, fret and worry about how much cheatgrass you could have in sage grouse range and say and where we really want to save that sagebrush you know well how much cheatgrass can be there uh, before it doesn't tip completely over to solid cheatgrass in in the when it burns and it's supposed to burn naturally that's before cheatgrass that's what was supposed to happen well it turns out it doesn't take very damn much cheatgrass at all because when it burns it goes to cheatgrass and it's and you so far nobody that i've seen has been able to figure out a way to fix that and the problem with changing climate is going to make it even worse for places like the birds of prey area to rehab and get out of this fire repeated sequence if they don't start thinking about other species, other plant species to grow out there. Because I don't know of any native plant that can put up with today's climate and fire frequency. There there probably are grasses from southern Nevada or something that might work, but... Yeah, that's. I mean, I, I think that's a really good point, right? Because I mean, we, you've we, explained the change in the landscape that you've already seen in your lifetime, and there's still a lot more dramatic change to come because the climate. That's before still, climate change really kicked in. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wonder, like, in light of what you're talking about about habitat degradation and the dramatic impact it's had in the NCA, you know, Morley thought for his whole life, I mean, for a lot of things, for raptor conservation, but also for protection of, you know, this specific area that was so important for raptors. And he was very successful in getting that protection that he sought. And he was also very successful, I feel like, in changing the public perception towards raptors. But... Was he missing something like it's it's like we got the protection for this NCA, but the picture you're painting is of a landscape that is dramatically altered despite the fact that it's been protected. People who cared about wildlife in those days never imagined what was going to happen to the plant communities. I mean, that concept was so foreign to lose it. A native sagebrush community, naturally, it's supposed to burn every 40 years, 70 years, 80 years, whatever, depending upon the species of it. And that's naturally what happened before cheatgrass showed up. And I don't think any of us ever appreciated what we could. There were a few guys um, that uh, could see it happen and recognize that we had to do something. And I'm talking about 30 years ago, there were Forest Service biologists, uh, plant people who were saying, it's going to hell on us here, folks. We need to start trying to find new plant species and nobody pays attention to them. And I, I see now the Forest Service and the BLM doing stupid things in land management. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, really, you know, that sounds harsh, but it is. I mean, every time there's a fire in the forest now, they fly on intermediate wheatgrass and smooth brome seed to stabilize the soils. Those two grass species mean that you will you'll never be able to grow a tree in the Boise forest again. Because they outcompete trees. Well, why have a forest if you can't have trees? Well, you can't have trees if you plant intermediate wheatgrass, you know, and and they just they don't get it. And well, I can because I don't work for the Forest Service and I probably wouldn't have for very long. But to tell them that, you know, this is dumb and all they have to do is go look at places that you planted 20, 30 years ago and see what's happened to them and realize that huckleberry plants aren't going to 
exist anymore. You know, in 30 years, they will be gone. So if there had been somebody yelling back then about uh, doing better job of stopping wildfires, it's possible that they could have gone out to the Burja Prairie area and bisected that thing into chunks and put in fire breaks and made it possible for their fire crews to actually catch up with a fire when it got there. Even with our knowledge of plants then, they could have done that, but... You're talking about going out there and plowing up sagebrush that's in the middle of the birds of prey area. I would have been bitching at you. That's stupid, you know, even though in hindsight, they probably would have been better off if they had gone out and established Forge Kosha fire breaks every half a mile. You had a 300-yard wide fire break. And, yeah, it's ugly on the landscape, but it allows the fire guys to have time to put out a fire. And you look back and you say, golly, why didn't you do that? Well... I did stupid stuff when I was in habitat, and I can look back now, even in my term as a as a wild as a habitat guy, and say, "Well, why did you do that, you dummy? Oh, you didn't realize it was the time that it was the wrong plant to put out there." But for the BLM now, there may be things you could do on a landscape scale. That's what you have to think about: is on on how can you impact landscape-sized acreages. And it's possible that if the state of Idaho, uh, as I understand it, the Department of Agriculture won't allow any use of uh, soil bacteria, which reduces the seed production of, of cheatgrass. Okay. But the Idaho Department of Agriculture won't won't allow that to be used. Don't ask me why. Doesn't make any sense. But if you had a broad scale landscape kind of a treatment so that you could do an effective enough job to reduce cheatgrass, then you can go back. And I, you know, people ask me, well, you know, could you go back to native plants? And I have to tell you, I spent a lot of time planting stuff in dry land areas. And I don't know what it's like to plant without having to fight cheatgrass because it's everywhere. So I don't know what you could go back and plant if you could reduce the, the amount of cheatgrass on a site for a significant period of time. That would be fun to try. <laughs> that's interesting, yeah. Well, that's, this, is beyond, this is beyond the scope. Of, <laughs> yeah, of the yeah no, I mean, it's like way beyond, but it's really fascinating, well, you know, the, and, and, and clearly like this was what your career evolved into was like this focus. Well, on, no, I on, spent... 15 years as a wildlife biologist mm -hmm. and seven years as law in law enforcement okay. and then went to habitat uh, as a habitat biologist okay. and, and had spent the rest of my career doing that. Gotcha. It's this this question of like, what does the future hold for this area, I think, is really important. I mean, you're the first person that we've talked to that has brought up this possibility of like, well, maybe we need to look to like non-native species that can actually survive in this area and still um, and still create the habitat for the prey base species that are needed to maintain the raptor population. Right. Which was why the area was protected in the first place. Yeah, I, I don't think that the that without some really deep thought and experience from people that are smarter than me about things like soil chemistry and, and the soil bacteria and all mm -hmm. that sort of thing or plants from all my experience has been here in Idaho. And as the climate changes, I think that plants that are from further south are going to be the only ones that are going to be able to tolerate or live and uh, increase in, in our new weather patterns. And somebody from down there is going to have to come up with the right species. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious about the sun goddess story. Um, I first came to Idaho to work for Karen and Mike in the canyon and got to repel to some prairie falcon scrapes um, and was very concerned a time or two about how aggressive some of the birds were being as I was climbing, but never got thumped in the back of the head and knocked out. So just curious about how that day went and how you get an unconscious person off rope and back up to safety. 
no, it was this, he was the safety man. Okay, oh. he was he was at the top of the cliff, and his job, or the reason he named her the Sun Goddess, was because she was trying to kill me. And I literally, as I'm rappelling down the slope or down the cliff, she would go between me and the cliff with her talons out and go right in front of my face, and just like, and it happened so fast you couldn't even see what was happening. She never cackled, never made any sound at all. Most of the time they just fly around and cack and you know right where they are. She never did. She wouldn't attack, she wouldn't stoop on you unless she had the sun at her back. And so the safety man's job, Dave, he's was running the safety rope. He's trying to watch her and yell at me when, so that I know to hug the cliff. Cause she's coming and uh, you know, it was scary getting to her thankfully the clip wasn't really high but in fact it wasn't more than 50 or 60 feet high it wasn't a very big clip all of a sudden the safety rope just comes pouring <laughs> down over the side and i'm yelling up slack up slack up slack because i'm at the nest and all of a sudden the whole safety rope ends up falling by and going down and so i just rappel down to the bottom of the cliff and climbed up and around and got back up to where Dave was and his head was laid open. He got it right in the back of the head and there was one of those 90 degree kind of a tears of scalp and blood was flying everywhere. So that was for the on the first nest visit. And then we had to go back a couple of weeks later to band the birds and Dave never wore a hat, you know, of any kind, a baseball hat or anything. But when we got out of the truck, started walking towards the nest, he had a helmet on. Because <laughs> she was, uh, yeah. But if you've ever done it, you, you know, you you realize, you know, that's what the normal prairie falcons do is they fly around and bitch at you. And that's basically they may swoop by and come by 20 feet away. But the sun goddess, she was different animal, boy. She was trying to kill you. And, uh, and I guess three years after I finished my study, there was a male prairie falcon at the same cliff that did the same thing. It wasn't the female, it was the male. So They're breeding aggressive birds. The son, <laughs> well, it was probably her son. Yeah, I don't know what the deal was, but yeah. But she was, uh, yeah, she was special. You know, when you got you climb into nest, if you start screwing around at the great horned owl nest, you're going to get grabbed. You know, if you go in a goshawk nest, you're going to get grabbed. You know, that's to be expected. I've never even had a an adult golden eagle make even a half-ass stoop at you when you climb into their nest. You know, of course, the young are going to grab you. I mean, that's, you know, expected, but... The golden eagles, my experience was they never weren't that aggressive about defending the nest. And yeah, the sun goddess was different. Yeah, that noise that they make as they pass by when you're hanging off a rope will get your attention for sure. Yeah, especially when it's <laughs> from here to the microwave. <laughs> well, we haven't actually, I mean, this is probably off, off topic here, but um, we haven't met before other than my phone call last week. Um, but I know your name through the Ogden Golden Eagle territory um, that I didn't know that it was associated with you at the time. And then I, I also worked a, f a few years later with Mike and Karen uh, as they were thinking about retiring and starting to sort of do some data management to clean up their database. I did some some work with them and, and got to go back into the history of all the field notebooks from geez, the late 60s on. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it's a really interesting thing to, to flip back through those and just see the same type of notes and, and observations that I had made, you know, 30 years later <laughs> as, as a new biologist. Yeah. But um, it's amazing the amount uh, of research and knowledge that has come from that canyon and, and what we know now that we that we didn't know then. You know, in the days that I was chasing prairie falcons, we just assumed that our prairie falcons were flying clear to this outside skirts of Boise to hunt ground squirrels. You know, uh, that was assumption because when you saw a prairie falcon kill a kill a ground squirrel out by the prison or something, they immediately turned around and headed, you know, south, you right. know, and so that's pretty obvious, but it wasn't until later that they figured out they actually, that's pretty much the only place they go to hunt. And looking back on it now with what I know about wildlife and habitat, to go south of the canyon 
it's the wrong kind of soils. It doesn't have the right kind of ground squirrels. It doesn't have the prey base that it's required to grow prairie falcons, you know. And so there was a reason they were going there. And there's a reason they're going to have to go there in the future because that's all the places they're going to find ground squirrels. I'm sure that for the golden eagles, I can't remember it. Like I've got my don'ts here, but basically, you know, 75% of the diet of golden eagles when I was doing research was jackrabbits, you know. Well, that can't be the case now. They have to be eating something else. And they're probably, you know, from what I've seen in the behavior of golden eagles, they're waiting for boats to go by and scare coots up. And then they're killing coots on the edge of the river. Well, that's smart and it works, but I don't know if it'll work long term. We would have never seen a golden eagle doing that sort of thing if there were ground squirrels to hunt. But got to give them credit for figuring it out. Yeah, we assume that they were very specialists uh yeah. turns out they can they can adapt a little but i think you you make a really good point that that might put a band-aid on the situation but it might not be a long-term viable food source for that species no and i i don't know how many pairs of eagles there are in the canyon now but i bet you it's not eight or nine you know like it was when i was down there so there already has been a decline in in densities of nesting densities there and that's because there ain't any jackrabbits. And you know, people don't understand that you can't have jackrabbits if you don't have sagebrush, you know, and, and they call them sage grouse for a reason. You know, if you don't have sagebrush, you don't get to have sage grouse. And that habitat type is critical to lots of wildlife out there. Well, you may have heard or, or may not have heard that after a, a 15 year data gap in the canyon, full canyon raptor surveys the idaho army national guard has found some funding and is partnering with blm and usgs and, and boise state to to do a 2019 canyon survey so oh, we'll, okay we'll have an they'll a have new better numbers idea and it'll overlap well with B, bsu's golden eagle work now that they've sort of taken over some of that so yeah. it'll be nice to get a better idea of what's happening out there next year you know, when I was chasing golden eagles, we had eagles that were nesting at uh, up at Bogus Basin outside of Horseshoe Bend, and jackrabbits weren't even on the menu. You know, that wasn't that wasn't available to them, and they were they were making it. You know, they're killing other things, and I think golden eagles can can do that. I'm not sure they can live with with wind farms, but um, they can they can make it on other prey. That was Andy Ogden, former fish and game expert of the Snake River Canyon, and his work helped establish the area's boundaries. He was a student of Morley Nelson and still remembers fondly his time with the Idaho legend. If you would like to learn more about this oral history project, more information can be found at birdsofpreyncapartnership.org slash dedication point. Dedication Point is a production of the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership in association with the Bureau of Land Management, the Wildlands Collective, and the Archives of Falconry. Today's show was produced by myself, your host, Gregory Haddock. Our theme music is by The Great Turtle. <laughs>